0: Hi everyone, and welcome to our podcast, In Good Company. I'm Nicola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Wealth Fund, and your host today. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest and most interesting companies in the world, so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm talking to Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and he's still the CEO today. We own 1% of the company, translating into more than 25 billion kroner or 2.5 billion US dollars. Netflix has pretty much single-handedly changed the way we consume entertainment and has, in a way, introduced binge-watching to the world. On top of that, Reed is one of the most interesting and fascinating CEOs I've ever met. So tune in. So, Reed, you uh, pretty much um, single-handedly have changed the way we uh, consume entertainment. How, how does that feel?
1: Well, obviously, it's been a huge team effort, and there was this little thing called the Internet, so we did get some help. Uh, and uh, the Internet's been transformative over so much of our lives. And in video, whether that's uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok, uh, Netflix, a lot of new innovative companies.
0: Mm. But when you had that kind of success, how do you, how do you stay humble?
1: Well, my success was later in life, um, so I think it was it's not that hard in your forties and fifties. I think if you have great success in your twenties, it's probably quite challenging.
0: yeah now, um, going back to your early days, uh, you taught English um, in Africa, and um, you said a few places that that's really um, taught you uh, resilience and empathy. How come?
1: Yeah, right out of university, <clears throat> I went to uh, Eswatini and was a high school math teacher actually. And um, you know, I worked hard at a very rural place. The kids worked hard, and I remember at one point there was a question um, on the exams that was a tile floor. It's you know so many meters by so many meters, and the tiles are you know x centimeter by y centimeter. How many tiles? You know, like a pretty basic question. And they all struggled with it. These were very sophisticated uh, kids, and it was only later in the session when one of them raised their hand, kind of sheepishly, and said, "Hey, Mr. Hastings, what's a tile?" And you know, they just didn't have the mental map because they didn't have any tile floors as all cast concrete you know or, or dirt floors and so i realized how well, so much of what we're doing is you know projecting and assuming things um and once we went through you know what tiles were the kids did great so there's just a lot of uh assumptions that get built in and miscommunication that happens and so you know that um Uh, you know, incident stuck with me for a long time about, you know, what do I think everyone gets, but they don't really get. Instead, I I could blame them and say, you know, these kids aren't doing the work, you know, these aren't very good students, you know, when in fact, um, but for the bravery of that one student, it was my mistake of, you know, not understanding that they haven't been exposed to tile floors.
0: Mm. Now, how do you think this resilience and empathy has helped you?
1: I think it's helped me because I often, when something goes wrong, I try to figure out what did I, what context did we not share? Instead of blaming people, um, so if you start from the assumption that they're <clears throat> great and smart and talented people, then you want to back up and think about okay, what did I, as a leader—in this case, not a teacher, but you know, a corporate leader—not um, say or you know, misstate, you know, that led people to do something that was um, you know not optimal. So mm-hmm. it's always gotten me to be a bigger systems thinker.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you also had a software company before Netflix, um, Pure Software. What 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 were the learnings from that? I mean, that was a hugely hugely successful company.
1: It was modestly successful by today's standards. But um, (laughs) uh, so started uh, when I was thirty, and then it got acquired when I was thirty seven. Um, and that was pure hard work, very technical software, um, and so I was uh, initially the inventor of it and patenter, and and brought in a bunch of people then, and you know it was it hit a niche problem very well, so it's like a, a software X-ray, okay? They could see problems, one class of problems inside a software, and so everybody wanted it at the time. Um, and that was very exciting, but it was chaotically run. I was, you know, working crazy hours and not my best self. Um, you know, and ultimately, again, the company got acquired. Yeah.
0: Now, moving on to Netflix, what are the most important decisions you made at Netflix, which has made it such a success?
1: Well, I think fundamentally, we were in the right place at the right time. We knew that streaming would be a phenomena over time and that we could get started with DVDs by post. So our first decade uh, was DVD by post as a simulator of the network. You still went to a website and chose you were a subscriber. So it had all the properties of today, except the delivery um, was the DVD by post. And then we had to do the evolution into streaming itself, And that, you know, was uh, challenging at times, um, but ultimately gave us a leg up uh, compared to all the big media giants, um, so that we could participate in this great revolution of on-demand television.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like uh, the corporate culture at Netflix has been really instrumental in driving their success. Um, And you lay it out on your website and so on. But what, what are the most important factors in your corporate culture?
1: Yeah, fundamentally, we realized we want to work with incredible people and that that's the most stimulating thing. And we're willing to tolerate um, professional job insecurity uh, to be on the chance to be on a high performance team. And it's a lot like a sports team. Um, that is, if everyone around you is great at their position, then the team play is amazing together. Mm-hmm. And so that's very uh, satisfying and very thrilling. And so it's all lined around this high performance culture. And to attract high performance people, then you want a lot of freedom and responsibility. You want uh, top of personal market compensation. You want openness. Um, All the things flow from that talent density orientation. Mm. Did you have a role model in developing that corporate culture? You know, it's inspiration from many sources. There was no single source um, that really defined that. And it was breaking convention. So simple example, in most of Silicon Valley, you, you focus on vesting, how to have golden handcuffs. And early on we said, let's not have golden handcuffs. Let's make people um love their work and not need any handcuffs. Um, you know, and so let's reverse it. So we, we've never had vesting and we've got low employee attrition. And so there's many, I think, um, imperfections in the traditional model and that instead if you focus on an incredible work environment for high performers, uh, then you get a lot of success. Seems like you have very few rules. Well, again, very creative people um, are oriented around uh, freedom, impact, um, and we're not a safety-critical business. You definitely need rules if you run an airline or a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you're in an in, in inventive and creative business whose fundamental value is being able to invent new shows or new business models, um, then it's good to um, have a very fertile ecosystem where it's a little bit chaotic. Uh, Sometimes we talk about it as managing right on the edge of chaos. You don't actually want to tip into chaos, but you want to be right on the edge of it. That's where you're most creative. Mm
0: -hmm. But isn't this... uh more difficult to do when you have grown to become a larger company like you are now?
1: It definitely is harder at 10,000 than 1,000 or 100. But on the other hand, we've got more sophisticated people um, who are running the different groups. And so, um, so far, that's worked out in balance um, extremely well, and we've continued to uh, be very productive. Mm. The Keeper test is, uh, is famous. What is that? Sure. The keeper test is how um, we model high performance culture. So normally with a job, it's seen as a right. You have a job right. You, you have to steal money or something awful to get fired. Right, and that comes out of the industrial economy, and instead, you know, if you think about professional sports, um you know you play for your position every season. <clears throat> it's not a- great, you know it's not an automatic thing, and so we model ourselves like that, and the keeper test is if one of your people quit, would you work hard to change their mind to stay, or would you sort of be secretly relieved? And that's our test on um, exiting someone with a generous severance package is if you wouldn't fight to keep them.
0: Mm. One of the buzzwords these days is psychological safety. And we have an episode with um, Amy Edmondson um, coming up a bit later. Now, how do you see that being differently from what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you do want people to uh, play at their highest level. So let's think of an athlete. Um, anytime you could get injured, and change your entire economic future. And yet if you think about getting injured, you don't play your best. And the best athletes can will themselves to ignore the danger of possible injury and to play their heart out. And so that's what we look for is people who can understand intellectually that um, there isn't, you know, high job security, but they will themselves to do their best possible work. Um, and so it's a bit of a boutique strategy, just like athletics is boutique. You know, it's not for everyone. Um, but certainly we've collected 10,000 people who thrive on having incredible colleagues and playing their heart out.
0: Mm. Now, transparency seems to be one of the other things. And we as a sovereign Wealth Fund consider ourselves the most transparent fund in the world, um, you know, talking about our voting intentions five days ahead of AGMs and so on. Do you think uh, there can be too much transparency?
1: In transparency, no. I see it as um, you know uh, very useful, uh, very helpful to stimulate. If people know what's going on, um, you know, then they can do better. And the old world people controlled information. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's for legitimate reason, like the risk of a leak, but most of the time it's sort of don't want other people to know what's going on. And so we do lean into transparency pretty heavily internally.
0: Now, Reid, moving on to the um, the current environment, I see you've said somewhere that you absolutely love competition and uh, for sure you have some competition now. So how do you look at the competitive landscape?
1: Sure. Think of it as we've always been competing with linear TV. Okay. Um, And then we were on demand and linear TV was not. And then, for example, um, in Norway, NRK has been a real leader on the public broadcaster side, which has, NRK has leaned into on-demand viewing Mm. faster and harder than any other public broadcaster in the world. But that's not the typical, but it does happen. And then so then we've got on-demand, and the competitors have on-demand. And so now we're competing on the quality of our programming, the quality of the recommendations. And so that's a lot tougher competition. And that's what you've seen. Now we've got a, a good lead, and we've got a strategic clarity about what we're trying to do. So the odds are very good. But again, it's not the black and white differentiator. They're on linear. You can only watch it at eight o'clock. We're on on demand. You can watch it anytime you want. You can binge view it. Uh, Now everybody does the binge viewing. Well, you you kind of invented the binge viewing, no? Yeah, and that's what happens. You invent something. I mean, invents a big word for for what <laughs> letting you have the letting the viewer have the freedom to uh, watch what they want when they want. So I think the vision's always been out there, and and really the internet is natural to allow that again. But now what you see is all of the linear broadcasters, whether that's Disney or NRK, they're all moving over to the internet. And, you know, most people are watching on the internet. So it's great that we have kind of think of a, Tesla doing the electric car. I mean, it's great that they invented the category, but now everyone's cheering for Mercedes and BMW and Ford and GM and Toyota and Honda to all get in the game and give Tesla a run. So we as consumers, we want competition. So I recognize that that's what consumers want in our field, too, is they want Disney and, and again, NRK and BBC and others to really give us a run, which ultimately serves the consumer. Mm -hmm. What's the the key to winning the content battle? I'm not sure anyone's going to win it. You know, there's going to be a lot of different providers. Um, but the key for us is really focusing on the quality of the shows that, um, you know, once you start watching, you just can't stop. It's just so gripping. Um, that's the key.
0: Mm. What's your, what about the entry into the gaming industry? How do you see yeah, that? Yeah,
1: well, it's a you know it's a type of content. So we've had series for a long time, and then we expanded into unscripted, uh, like Love Is Blind, um, and then we expanded into film and documentaries. Um, so you know we've been expanding categories steadily, and for us, games is another category of great entertainment.
0: Reed, you have some uh, really impressive um, algorithms um, which kind of leads people to new programs. Do, do you think there's a danger that this is kind of dumping
1: down the, um, the audience? Um, no, if you need to show the same uh, series to everybody, then that's kind of the dumbing down because then you program for the masses. If you've got good algorithms, good personalization, good recommendations, you can do lots of specialty content. And so you get everything from The Crown to Squid Game, you know, which, you know, very few people watch both of those two. Those are like different demographics. Um, and so the algorithms really support uh, diversity and storytelling.
0: Mm. When did you, for the first time, become interested in storytelling?
1: You know, I think all humans are interested in storytelling, really, since the advent of language, you know, probably 100,000 years ago, stories have been the way that we come to communicate, understand each other. But on a professional basis, it was really my frustrations with video rental, um, how difficult it was to drive there to get the, you know, uh, back then it was VHS cassettes, you know, and bring them back. So it was kind of a logistics orientation. And then it was only in the last 15 years <clears throat> that my partner uh, Ted Sarandos really led us um, to be creators ourselves. Mm.
0: You have uh, become co-CEOs with him, um, which is which is rare. And we have have a, a similar kind of uh, structure in the sovereign wealth fund here in Norway, where we are co-pilots, and
1: it works well here. But it doesn't work for everybody. What's the key f- to get that one to work? You think? I would say co-CEO is a very high performance technique that when the two people are very compatible, it works incredibly well. Um, But it's only for a few situations where you've got a great chemistry match and you can get a one plus one equals three phenomena and be even more effective.
0: And what is it with the two of you who make that so successful?
1: Well, we've grown up together. We've been working together for 22 years. We were kids when we started. Um, And I would say there's just a deep respect for our complementary. You know, I'm more business analytic, you know, and Ted's more uh, creative, um, human, uh, marketing, excitement. Um, So he's more fun at a party, and I'm more of the spreadsheet person. But hey, one thing which I think is
0: uh, uh, very interesting uh, is you talk about your own career as uh, kind of being the tortoise rather than the hare. And you claim that you have been a bit slow out of the books. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> in the tortoise and the hare, uh, the tortoise is slow, but eventually wins the race against yep. the speedy hare. Yep. Um, and I find that as a life metaphor also, which is a lot of people want to tear the world up by the time they're 30 and, you know, um, uh, change everything. And, you know, God bless them, but not all of us are wired that way. Um, you know, and I feel like I was just beginning to hit my stride at 30 and didn't really hit it till 50. And so that's more of a tortoise metaphor. And everyone 's different so again i don 't want to take away from someone who at twenty five is changing the world that 's great too, but i don 't want everyone to think that that 's normal or that you have to do it there's many times when people develop later in life uh, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, you know in every dimension
0: Why, why do you think um, so many people are in such a hurry when they're young?
1: You know, I think our culture glamorizes amazing things, and it's amazing when you see a 25-year-old running a big company. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the danger of the high wire act, you know, a, a high wire between two buildings and someone's walking across it, it's like, you know, you know they might die, and that's what kind of draws you to it. <laughs> um, so that I think there's a little bit of that uh, voyeurism.
0: Because I think it's quite funny, I'm, I'm kind of looking at myself, I'm much more long-term now when I'm kind of soon about to die than I was when I was 25 and I had a whole life ahead of me.
1: Yeah, it is ironic that uh, it takes a long time to develop. Um, but then uh, we move aside and uh, you know create room. Do you watch a lot of shows? Yeah, uh, I, I love the content. You know, uh, I try to watch uh, a little bit of many things. And then the things that I love, um, I'll watch with my wife. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's uh, I get both professional enjoyment and personal. What do you love these days? I uh, the think I just watched is um, uh, Partner Track. Uh, it's this high-octane um, Asian-American lawyer, uh, M&A wizard, um, and uh, so it's a fascinating kind of New York high-end uh, show.
0: Mm. Well, well, um, and here, being um, based in the middle of a central bank, of course, I love uh, money heist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, getting hold of the presses oh, <laughs> and, and printing paper money while we still have it. It's quite a good story. Yeah. Have you had any personal setbacks? Oh sure, um, my life's been uh, filled with ups and downs um, of things not uh, that didn't work out. One of my uh, first projects, I was twenty seven, twenty eight, uh, and I got excited about um, a new product for a computer because I was always um, typing on the computer, but the, taking my hand off to use the mouse, and then I realized, oh, you know, we should really develop a foot mouse where you control it like a sewing machine um, or a piano. You know, but control the uh, mouse with a foot, and so I spent a long time developing this what I thought was going to be this revolutionary device. And it turns out that your leg cramps; it's not very precise, and then the floor is also a very dirty environment. So, a couple days into using a, a foot mouse, no one wanted to touch it. So, uh, th- my first big exciting adventure in that way in business was a total failure.
0: Well, that's interesting. Um, we have uh, a source on questions from um, you know some crowdsourcing, and one of the interesting questions I think uh, came up
1: uh, was, um, do you think great companies are led by happy people? Not consistently, um, I would say uh, they're led by entrepreneurial-driven people, and some of the time those people are very happy, and some of the time not, and that gives them an edge, which uh, pushes them.
0: Mm. So, when you look at um, young people who ask you for advice, what uh, what are the advice you give them?
1: You know, it really varies tremendously on the kid. There's certainly an aspect of, you know, follow the passion, um, find things that you're really excited about. There's also an aspect of be excited about the things you're doing. You know, some of it is just an attitude. Um, of finding all the nuance on it. Um, another is, you know, it's, don't be in too much of a rush. Um, you know, it's okay to take time to develop skills um, in various areas. Uh, so <clears throat> when I left university at uh, 21 and then was a, the teacher in Africa, when I came back, you know, all my peers had moved ahead. They all had amazing jobs and had finished school. And, you know, I definitely felt behind um Um, But um, I'm still glad that I did, you know, that uh, time in Africa um, and, uh, you know, I encourage people to push themselves.
0: A lot of your philanthropy is based on education. Is that where it started?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, and because I had been a teacher when I first had money to do philanthropy with, I focused on education. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's better than environment or nuclear disarmament or many other great causes, um, but it's the one that I've chosen to work on. And then, you know, now I've put 30 years of philanthropy into education and, you know, every year I try to learn more. Um, and a red eye out tonight to New York and I got a bunch of education meetings tomorrow um, so it's, it remains 10-20% uh, of my life Wow well, you
0: for sure um, changed a lot of the world uh, in many different ways uh, and uh, we've been really really uh, pleased to have you on here today so safe travels to New York and uh,
1: thanks for taking the time Awesome It's great treat to be with you and uh, look forward to uh, uh, another visit together Thank you so much